Welcome to the BadgeCast One podcast with your host, Brian Ellis, a 20-plus year veteran police leader who's dedicated to helping police officers be their highest and best. Our show aims to dive deep to deliver leadership strategies of top experts to turbocharge public safety leadership. This podcast is brought to you by the National Command and Staff College. To find out more about our team, please visit us at www.commandcollege.org. The National Command and Staff College is passionate about enhancing your leadership capabilities and building the best version of you. All right, good morning. We're, uh, we're here with Michael Abershoff, retired commander of the USS Benfold and best-selling author of It's Your Ship, Management Techniques from the Best Damn Ship in the Navy. Michael's leadership story is a stunning transformation about when leaders really pay attention to the right things. Uh, Mike has written three books and uh, It's Your Ship has sold over 1 million copies. So we're really excited to have him here today because his message is important and it's the kind of leadership that we embrace here at the National Command and Staff College. So Mike, welcome to our show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here, Brian. Oh, we're uh, we're completely blessed to have you here. It's uh, it's really exciting. So, you know, before we dive into our conversation about uh, it's your ship, uh, can you tell us what you're working on right now? Well, you know, the economy is at full employment right now, and uh, businesses are having a severe labor crunch, and they're waking up to the concept of leadership, that it's uh, cheaper to retain the talent that you already have than to uh, lose it and have to go out and find replacements and train them. And every industry in the U.S. today is short of talent. Uh, I spoke to a commercial landscaping company. They could do 30% more business a year, but they don't have the workers to do it. I spoke to the Sand and Gravel Association. They don't have enough truck drivers to drive gravel out of the pits that make our roads and runways. And so every industry, high tech is short of workers. And so every industry today is short of people and they're looking out for ways to engage the ones that they have so that they can stay in business. And so last year was my busiest year ever. This year I'm very busy. Um, I've got a leadership consulting group, the Aegis Performance Group, and it's doing very well. So uh, that's pretty much what I'm working on, uh, helping companies get their leadership and managers to understand the concept of leadership and and how you engage people to drive performance. Yeah, it's all good stuff. And and we see that in public safety. There's no shortage of jobs. And so, uh, you know, happy people stay where they're at and uh, other people have lots of other options. So, so let me ask you, because I'm, I'm a big reader, I like to, you know, obviously I, your book was a book that I picked up and I don't, it's probably one of five books that I picked up and read straight through without putting it down, uh, just because there was just a lot of good stuff in it. And uh, so what are you reading right now? I just finished reading uh, Make Your Bed by Admiral Bill McRaven, uh, who was the SEAL that planned the raid that captured Bin Laden. And uh, he's a personal hero of mine. I think he's a great American. And and uh, I was given his book and uh, just finished it. Nice. Nice. Definitely put that one on the list. So, Michael, it's uh, it's clear that leadership's a big passion of yours. And 
you know, that obviously that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have you here. And our organization uses uh, It's Your Ship as a required reading of one of our courses because there's just so much valuable information in it. And so I wanted to really dive into a few specific questions uh, and to allow you to kind of really inspire our listeners on why leadership is so important for their personal and organizational lives. So um, I think you really touched on it in, 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 in your opening, uh, in our opening conversation about the cost of attrition. I mean, you mentioned in, in the book, uh, the Benefold uh, has a crew that could not wait to get out of the Navy. And you described that your most proud achievement was turning that crew into a tight knit, smooth functioning team that, that felt that they were the best ship. Uh, and that cost of attrition can be seen because, you know, uh, when you lose people, it's, it's, it, it, it costs a lot to, to retrain and, 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 and find new ones. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, why the cost of attrition is so important? So I don't know what the exact figures are today to recruit one person into the military and get him or her through the first eight weeks of boot camp, But 20 years ago, it was about $45,000 just to get one person in the door and through basic training. Uh, and I can't believe that that cost has come down in the last 20 years. And the military is currently not meeting their recruiting goals. And the Navy is now giving you a $30,000 bonus just to sign up. And so it used to be when you, when you re-enlisted, you would get a $30,000 bonus. Now you're getting that bonus just to sign up. And so the cost of getting a person into the Navy today and through eight weeks of boot camp has to be approaching $80,000, $90,000. And so then what was happening, you know, we were losing those people before uh, their enlistment contract was even up, either through disciplinary, disciplinary proceedings or performance. And that is a huge amount of money that somebody's got to pay for. And, you know, we're in the same business in that, you know, taxpayers have to foot that bill and nobody was being held accountable for, you know, retaining people. And it's like, you know, if I'm going to be the commanding officer of the ship, you know, I'm signing up to be accountable uh, for being a wise steward of our country's resources. And one of the things I can do to help drive down costs, is to retain more of the people instead of having them leave. And then once you retain them, they get, you know, you're constant, you're, you're not having to constantly go back and retrain new people. You're training people who are already trained to get to the next level. And if they stay longer, then you can get to the next higher level after that. So it's got a beneficial effect of being able to compound and all that valuable training that you um, invest in people. And so, People, the crew staying together for a longer period of time is what helped us, um, you know, win the Spokane Trophy for, for best ship in the Pacific Fleet. And they won the award for best ship in the entire Navy years three and four after I left because that unit remained intact for a longer period of time and they were get, able to get to a higher level of performance. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, I, I see that in policing. I mean, the, the rookie cops are the ones that make the most mistakes because they don't have that experience to sh- tell them that, hey, maybe you shouldn't drive this fast or maybe this is a bad idea. And you 
and you get a lot of on the job learning. And I mean, especially right now in, in the United States, there's a, there's a lot of negativity surrounding public safety, you know, for, for a lot of different reasons. And I think that, um, you know, recruiting a retention is becoming a real issue. And so, you know, it's definitely something that we need to really be mindful to attract and, and to retain uh, police officers for the long term, because the, the longer they stay with us, the, you know, it's the better cops that we, that, that we ultimately produce. So, um, and they learn, they learn their communities better. And right. so based on that knowledge, they can, um, deploy better wisdom and how to diffuse a situation or to keep an, a situation from escalating out of control. No doubt. I mean, you start talking about restorative justice and um, community-oriented policing. It's it's a lot easier to do when when you know everybody on the block as opposed to you're just driving down a, a piece of roadway that, you know, there's just a bunch of houses on. So, yeah, no, I couldn't agree right. more. Yep. Well, I, I love that, uh, you know, one of the things that the readers can definitely see uh, from reading your book, at least that I saw it, was the intention about your people policies uh, on the Benfold. Were you always that kind of guy uh, or was that kind of a learning uh, process for you? It was a total learning process. And, you know, I grew up in the military, you know, command and control, top down, my way or the highway. And when I saw my predecessor getting cheered when he left the ship, I took a step back and I thought, as I came up through the ranks and got transferred from job to job, I wonder how many of my sailors secretly cheered whenever I got transferred. And the fact of the matter is, I didn't know. And because I didn't know, it meant that I wasn't as self-aware as I needed to be. So that one moment in time had a transformative effect on me that I need to step up to the plate. I need to become a better leader. And I need to improve before I can ask my crew to improve. So my leadership transformation started with me before I could ever even think about asking the crew to change. And I started putting myself in their shoes and viewing me and my leadership style through their eyes. And you know what? I used to tell people what to do and how to do it. And in one of the interviews, and I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, a technician asked me how to do a procedure. And I remember thinking, you know, you're the technician. Why are you asking me how to do this? And instead of telling them how to do it, I said, what do you think? If you own this ship, how would you do this? And he was astounded that I would ask him for his input as to how he should do his own, um, you know, maintenance check. And so he said, well, if I owned it, this is what I do. And I said, do it. And he turned in flawless performance. And what do you think eventually became it's your ship? where instead of telling sailors how to do things, I would lay out the requirements and let them design the solution. And when people feel involved in designing the solution, they take accountability and personal responsibility for the results. And so that was my aha moment. When I came up through the ranks, I hated being told what to do and how to do it. And when I put myself in their shoes, I, I thought they probably hated as well. So instead of, you know, telling them how to do things, it was, what do you think? How would you do this if you owned it? And, you know, they stepped up to the plate and, and, and delivered flawless performance. 
Yeah, that's good stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, one of my uh, bosses at one time told me, hey, don't take yourself too seriously. When I, when I first promoted a sergeant, he said, don't take yourself too seriously. Nobody else does. And, uh, you know, it was kind of that, that uh, reaffirming message of just being humble uh, and being humble in your role. But um, sometimes that's not always easy. It seems like as people climb, maybe their ego tends to grow a little bit. So, you know, what advice do you have for people uh, when it comes to kind of caging their ego to ensure that you don't stand in your own way of developing people? I call it excellence without arrogance and to lead with a sense of humility. And once you get promoted, you know, you're, it's the system telling you that you're a good person and you're doing a great job. And so check your ego at the door. You've gotten the validation from the promotion. And instead of being a butthead to your people, you know, it's licensed for you to be a more empathetic and engaging leader, whereby you can, you know, you know the answers, but instead of telling your people what the answer is, let them, you know, come up with their own solution and you can provide them guidance, certainly. And you don't want them to go off and do something that's wrong, but once they start getting in the habit of making their own decisions, it lifts burdens off that leader so they don't have to micromanage everything. So if you're micromanaging every aspect of how you do your, how your people do their job, uh, you're probably not on the right track and your people are probably disgruntled. But when they feel like they're part of the team and they're, they can voice their opinion, you know, then without fear, you know, without, you know, being fearful of what they're, they're going to get reprimanded if they say something you don't agree with, you know, then you're on the right track. And that's what we tried to get to on the ship. Yeah. So how do you, how do you balance competition? It seems like that's a natural process when people start getting good at their job. I mean, people get competitive and I would imagine, I know police officers are, you know, very type A people. I'd imagine a, a, a lot of uh, military people are very type A people. And, you know, it seems like there's just a delicate balance because, you know, uh, a competition could can can get chaotic, but it's I think there's a good level of it that needs to be there. And I mean, do you think about that uh, in 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 the workplace? I'm very competitive, and but the thing is, I'm competitive with myself, and I wanted my sailors to be in competition internally, and and realize that no one is keeping us from being the best except ourselves, and so. Uh, it's important to strive uh, to be the best because ultimately that's how you stay safe in, in a very dangerous uh, profession. And so, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with competition, but we would never undermine anybody else in order to make ourselves look better. We were in competition with ourselves and and we didn't worry about what what others were doing, just what we were doing. Yeah, that's good. Um, and and then how do you cage somebody that maybe under your command that might be seems to be getting a little out of you know? Have you, do you have those com- conversations with people that might be going a little, you know, uh, uh, too far in, in their competitive nature, or is that just kind of a you know, a culture that you create and then they just naturally start conforming to what everybody else is doing. So I changed the criteria 
about how we rank department heads on our ship. And it's very hyper-competitive to, to get the top rankings. And I've got five department heads, and you've got to be one or two to, to get command of your own ship, and so it's very competitive. And I changed the way I evaluate them, and the number one criteria was collaboration with your fellow department heads and to drive that collaboration down to the lowest levels in your department. So if you wanted the top ranking, you had to be the best collaborator uh, as opposed to being so hyper-competitive that you don't help the fellow departments. And it worked. Uh, if you ask me my opinion, that collaboration among the five departments is, is the number one reason why we were able to get to the level of performance that we did. Yeah, no doubt. So let me ask you, because, I mean, obviously, people policies are incredibly important to you. You stress humble uh, humbleness and, uh, and you know, just the being an in, intentional when it comes to just dealing with people and being collaborative. Why do you think still there's, I mean, if you look at Gallup polls in regards to engaging workforces and everything else, um, I mean, this is a big, this isn't a black swan. It's This is a big gray rhino that's sitting in this this room and why do you think that there's just still such a, a lackluster to do something about it? I think it's insecurity. I don't think people are inherently bad, but I think people are insecure leaders that causes them to think if, you know, you know, if I undermine others or if I'm hyper competitive and, and don't help others so that I can get ahead that it makes them look stronger. But in actuality, I think it makes them look weak. They just don't realize it. And so I think it's a sign of a strong leader if you are seen as that go-to person in the department or on the ship that, you know, will help somebody else, even if they're not in your chain of command, to, and, and go the extra mile to help them. And so when people feel secure as a leader, uh, they're willing to do that. When they feel insecure, um, they lead with their ego and are afraid to, um, to help others and just worry about themselves. And so I think it's having the self-awareness uh, that you need to check your ego at the door and that you'll be seen as a much stronger leader by your people and you know, by others in the department if that's how you come across. Yeah, no doubt. You think um, so, so? There's an old, uh, at least in police work. There's an old. There's a saying: uh, one ah crap wipes out a hundred attaboys. And so, uh, it, it seems like, at least in my experience, there's times where, um, as you promote in an organization, people's fear of mistakes uh, increases. So, can you can you maybe talk a little bit about you know? Uh, how to reduce this fear in the workplace. And I mean, if you're going to give people autonomy, it means that they might do it your way and your way might not be their uh, or their way might not be your way. And, and so there's just a, 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 there's a little anxiety there for, for, for a competitive person. And so, you know, how, how do you help bosses kind of let go of that? So I resisted the, the urge to tell people to do it my way. And if they came up with a solution that would get us where we needed to go, and it may not have been the way I would have done it, I'd let them do it anyway. And what I learned was sometimes 
the way they designed it was better than the way I would have told them to do it. Sometimes my way would have been better, but at least they learned along the way. And that, you know, once you get that learning, you gain wisdom and you do it better the next time. So I think our strength was we never made a big mistake and we never made the same mistake twice. But did we make mistakes every day? Absolutely. And as long as you're not making a big mistake, as long as nobody gets killed or injured, you know, everything will be fine. And and so I resisted the urge to impose my own solution. And if their solution would get us where we needed to go, I let them do it. And by letting them do it, they take ownership. It takes burdens off my shoulder. I can go work. I can go focus on something else. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, we're going to break some China every now and then, right? Uh, it just is what it is. Um, so if you Google toxic leadership, there are 50 million results. And so I think we touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, how, how can organizations get better at, uh, this thing that seems to, that we struggle and we being, being every profession struggles with, you know, this toxic leadership stuff. How, how do we, how can we start eradicating it? Well, it starts at the top, but if the top isn't doing it, then you can do it at your level um, and focus on your team, and you will deliver the results that will that will gain everybody's attention. But you know, the key is to so it's tougher when people's lives are on the line, and I know your folks, their lives are on the line every day, as were mine. And what drove me more than anything wasn't my next promotion. It was never having to write the parents of any of my sailors telling them that their sons or daughters weren't coming home because we didn't give it our best. In the days of one person barking orders and expecting excellence, they're over. Because your business and my business is incredibly more complex than it was just 20 years ago. And you need people who can think on their feet who can respond, who can anticipate. And if they're waiting to be told what to do, it could cost lives. And so that's why everybody needs to step back and think, how can I train my team so that they go from being, you know, in a reaction mode to being anticipatory and being out in front leading? And that, you know, we're in a we're in a profession where we have to be optimistic and upbeat where we, you know, have to um, put our best foot forward to the community and, and deal with people that may be different than us. And if we're insecure about that, it will cause problems in the community. But if we're confident and humble and, and listen to the people we're trying to keep safe, um, then they will have better attitudes towards us. And they will feel like we have their best interests at heart instead of telling them what to do, work together to form a solution. And, um, and I think that's a way to keep our community safer. And I found that's the way I kept my ship safer. I didn't order excellence, but I created that culture by which people felt like they could come to work every day. And if they saw something that how we could improve just 1% that I would listen to them and that they weren't, they didn't fear telling me what was going on. And so, you know, 
if you have fear in your department, if your people are afraid to tell you the truth, then you got a problem. And it's with you. You know, it's not with them. If they, if they are fearful, the problem is with you, not with them. Yeah, I know. That's so true. I mean, every, we, and we, we really need that, that, uh, that thinking that every officer is a leader, every, every person in the military is a leader. And then how do we extrapolate the best qualities out of each person? So every possible point of service that they have, they're using their leadership capabilities to do the best job possible. Cause you I mean, even, I mean, bosses can't be everywhere all the time. And so, uh, you know, even the greatest micromanager can't know what everybody's doing all the time. So it's, I, I mean, it's, it is inherently uh, uh, critical that we get that right. There is one thing well, that and we have to be, and we, and we have to be right a hundred percent of the time. That's the other problem. And, and so, uh, what happens when you know that captain isn't can't be there 100% of the time? You have to have a trained crew that you have confidence in that if they see a situation, they'll handle it the right way. Because unfortunately, with the you know microscope that we live under, uh, we have to be right all the time. And um, if you have people just waiting to be told what to do, um, it it might not lead to a great situation. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's talk. I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, I think every at least at least I know as a, as a manager in an organization, I want my people to do the best job that they possibly can all the time. Give them the tools to uh, uh, to do their job, have the right conversations. But there comes times where you know people make bad errors and judgment, and sometimes it's mistake of the heart, sometimes it's a mistake of the mind, but. There comes a time that every boss will deal with discipline. So uh, you talked about it in the, in the book, uh, you know, the importance of getting uh, of getting it right and, and and being fair. Can you you talk a little bit about that? When uh, you know, how do you approach discipline? Well, one I hate my the role that I hated the most was disciplining my sailors. I just absolutely, absolutely dreaded it. And if you ask my command master chief, he would tell you the same thing that he did. He never wanted to come get me and say, it's time to go to captain's mass for disciplinary proceedings. Because I view that as a, as a failure on our part. If, if I had to discipline somebody, I always deep down felt, you know, what did I do wrong that contributed to this um, situation? But at the end of the day, um, there's a difference between disciplining disciplining people when they make a mistake or coaching them so that they never do it again. And if somebody made a mistake, I would never tell them what the mistake was. Um, I'd get them to say, to evaluate their own performance and say, what did you do right? And what did, what could you have done better? So that if you see the situation again, um, you know, we, we get a better outcome. And so um, I forced them to critique themselves before I ever got involved. And if they miss something, then I get involved and say, well, from my viewpoint, um, this, is what I, this is what I would expect you to do differently or better. But the first, the first pass, I wanted them uh, to tell me uh, what they did right, what they did wrong, and what would they do differently if they saw the situation again. 
And, you know, if people's, if somebody's doing their best and they come up a little bit short, I'm not going to discipline them, but neither am I going to let it slide by without having a coachable moment. So I think we need to, to think about how we characterize things is not discipline, but rather, you know, um, coaching and mentoring so that they do better next time. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, you're touching on it. That it's, it's an education based discipline where we're, we're trying to get them to grow. Um, you know, I, it, but I also understand and at least, at least in public safety, there's, there are other people, there are, there are outliers in our, in our professions that, you know, do things that they really need to, uh, you know, have some kind of significant consequence too, uh, that at least lets everybody know that things aren't tolerated. So if let's, let's, let me ask you a, a question. If let's say you've got a, had a, a sailor, it's been disciplined a, a number of times because he or she is just not getting whatever they're being coached or, 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 or trained to do. Um, how do you help that person in their comeback role? And, and because, I mean, there's that natural process where bosses, you know, they're going to get a jacket, a reputation, you know, and, and bosses might not be easy to let go from, you know, that's the guy or gal that's consistently made, you know, X mistake. And, and so how do you help that process from, you know, you know encourage their comeback, but also that people let go of, uh, you know, of, of that past a little bit. So uh, I've got several answers. And one is um, Benfold became known as um, the place to send officers if they failed elsewhere. <laughs> and I got one such officer because, because the squadron commander knew that if, um, if they got a bad shake somewhere else, they could come to us and we treat them fairly. But I got one young ensign uh, who was fired off another ship, uh, and he was abusive of his people. And I knew his reputation uh, before he was before the commodore asked me to even take him. And I I did something that you know isn't militarily correct. But when he got aboard my ship, I said, "I'm going to give you a fresh start, but I'm not going to let you ruin your division." And your chief petty officer, who was underneath him, you know, rank wise is authorized to reprimand you if you get out of line or abusive to any sailor on this ship. And so that had never been done before where a chief could reprimand a superior officer. Uh, but I empowered that chief to do it. And you know what? This young ensign turned around and it's been 20 years and he and I talk every two weeks and wow. it's an ongoing coaching. And, um, and I'm today he's a, he got out of the Navy, got his law degree. He works for the government uh, in the DOD as a you know contract specialist. But, you know, it's always, you know, coaching him to be an upbeat leader as opposed to uh, saying no all the time. And that's what I told him. My last coaching session is, Elliot, you need to be known as that person who will find a way to get the yes. And if you are known as that person, then people will want to work with you and want to come work for you. But if the first word out of your mouth is always no, nobody will want to work with you. And so it was 
I empowered the chief to discipline Elliot if he was abusive or said something caustic to sailors on my ship. And you know what? He he never had to do it because Elliot knew he was uh, under the gun. And Elliot gained the confidence to become a better leader once he saw how it was done and what was expected of him. So, um, you know, there's that way to do it. But also, um, you know, what we tried to do was it was it was not cool to be abusive uh, to our people. And people in my officers held each other accountable that we're not going to tolerate each other being abusive to our people. We're going to hold them to high standards, but we're not going to demean them. We're not going to degrade them. And we're not going to challenge their motives. We assumed that our people wanted to do a great job every day. And if they screw up, we need to look at ourselves first and see what we need to do to change the process or to change our training. And, you know, if the people didn't want to change after we went the extra mile to connect with them, you know, I had to, I had to get rid of four or five sailors because they just didn't want to be there. And so that's the other thing. If they're an outlier and they just don't want to be there and they're dragging everybody else down, you do whatever you can to connect with them. But if they just don't want to change, you know, they need to go find um, employment somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And I think you kind of answered some of this already, but, and that's just, you know, what kind of intentional acts did you do uh, to set up your workspace where you're helping mitigate some of that discipline or the issues that, uh, you know, maybe when you first came on, I mean, you know, sometimes things are really obvious you see in just regards to people, the way they interact, or you see different processes that you go, okay, well, this needs to be fine tuned. And, and maybe you're going to give that autonomy to, to those people to, to do that by asking the right questions. But were there any other things that, that, that you were doing absent of, uh, of just having those good conversations with your, with your supervisors? Well, I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, and I got to know their names, their spouses' names, their children's names, their hometowns. And in the interviews, I asked them, is there sexual harassment on this ship? Is there racial prejudice on this ship? And if I heard of instances where um, people weren't complying with my directives, you know, uh, non-compliance on sexual harassment and racial prejudice uh, was painful on that ship because I wanted everybody to have a fair shot. And so, but in these interviews, um, they got to know me. And so I wanted them to respect their chain of command, but I didn't want them to fear us. And fear is a cancer in any organization. And if any of your people on the front line fear telling the chain of command what's going on, then something's wrong with the culture. If something is broken, I want to know about it so we can fix it. And if something is, we're just getting average results, I want to know how we can make it better. And don't fear telling us what you're seeing on the front line. And so, you know, essentially, you know, one of the things that helped the turnaround on the ship was when people knew I was serious about wanting their input on how to improve, and they they did not fear telling me the truth. And once we had that you know, free and open dialogue, discipline actually improved because they took greater pride in themselves and in their organization 
and they didn't want to deviate from the standards. And so that's what you get when you have a motivated and engaged workforce that, that don't fear um, telling you the truth, but rather respect you. And that's what every leader in, in every police force in the country and every military unit in the, in the military should get to is where people respect you so much they don't fear telling you what's going on so that you can be part of the solution to help make it better. Yeah. Did you think there's any kind of uh, natural fear that happens uh, with, you know, like I know one thing when I promoted from officer to sergeant, uh, you know, one of the things that I initially didn't like was people, it seemed like people forgot my first name and, uh, uh, and I think it's a it's a it's a more of a respect thing in, in 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 a group as opposed to not forgetting your name. But then when I promoted from sergeant to lieutenant, you know, it's you know, LT is a is a uh, you know something that's it's it's almost an endearment term. And you know, your troops they they go they'll either call you lieutenant, which is not an endearment term, or LT and um, but I still want to be Brian. And, uh, you know, so I try r- really hard to connect with people all the time to, to make sure. But do you see the same thing in, in the uh, uh, in the Navy? I mean, I think a lot of people respect rank, so they'll use that, that, uh, that rank when they're addressing you in front of people. Um, and do you see that as a is more of a, just a respect thing, or do you think that there's just a, a little bit of a fear component or a, a combination of the two, or you know, what are your thoughts? So uh, whenever the captain goes into a space, walking around the ship, going into a workspace or into an office, everybody in the room is supposed to uh, yell attention on deck and stand at attention. And I didn't want losing the productivity. I didn't want them to stop what they were doing. Um, to, you know, to stand up and, and acknowledge that I entered the room. And I actually told my command master chief, I don't want them standing up anymore. And he said, I'm not going to follow through on that because <laughs> they want to stand up when you come into the room. And so I was actually embarrassed, but my command master chief uh, made, the, um, made the crew not listen to my directive on that one issue. And so I think they stood out of respect as opposed to having to, but um, I didn't like it because I didn't want to disrupt whatever they were doing, but I acquiesced and I let the master chief have a win on that one. <laughs> and so you're right. You know, when people uh, do respect you, they'll, you'll, you'll know it when they respect you uh, and you'll know it when they don't respect you as well. And you can't order people to respect you. You have to go out and earn it and demonstrate it each and every day. And when you get that respect, that's the foundation upon which you can create a great unit. Right. No, that's good stuff. And, um, you know, with that, uh, you know, obviously ethics play a, a huge role and, and it's not just telling people or asking for them to have good ethics, but for a leader to also show, uh, that, that, that they're displaying good ethics all the time. So in the, in the book, you mentioned the uh, Washington Post test, and I, I love it because uh, uh, it, it, I just want to want our listeners to know a little bit more about it and, uh, and kind of what you mean by that. 
I used to tell my sailors, if what you're doing appeared on the front page of the Washington, Washington Post tomorrow, if you'd be proud, I will support you 100% of the time. And if you're embarrassed, don't go there without me. And so, um, and I tried never to do anything that would embarrass our ship or myself or my sailors or the government or the Navy. And so think about if you, if your actions appeared on the front page tomorrow, if you'd be proud, you're going to be okay. Nobody's ever going to criticize you. If you're embarrassed, you know, you probably shouldn't do it because people are watching us, uh, each and every thing that we do. And, um, everybody has a camera these days. And so we need to comport ourselves, you know, in a way that we would be proud if our actions appeared on the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. One of my peers had a uh, much lower bar, obviously, because, you know, his, his old saying was, you don't have to make me proud. Just don't make me embarrassed. Um, uh, but uh, no, I, I love that uh, just because it's, it's the, the reality of, of the Washington post test is, you know, just a self check, you know, when, when you're caught in those decisions where you're going, okay, well, not everything is a black and white issue. Not, not everything's a, a right and wrong, or, you know, there's sometimes it's, it gets complicated. It gets really messy. And, and a it lot does. of times you have to weigh a lot of different options. And so that's a great little tool that somebody could use in that situation to go, Hey, what's, what do I, you know, what, what I, what's the best possible solution for me right now? Cause it's not, it's not always easy. And, you know, you guys are under the gun each and every day. Every minute you're on the job, you know, you have to be on your toes. You have to be alert because one bad thing, you know, could get you, you, you know, either killed or injured, but also negative publicity. And so, you know, I always, you know, lean back and say, what's the, what's the right thing to do here? And if it's the right thing to do, and I would be proud if it showed up in the newspaper tomorrow, I'm going to do it. And, and I can withstand any back, you know, second guessing or backstabbing. But if you're going to be proud, you make your department look good, make your community look good. Nobody will ever second guess you. Right. No, I do that a lot. Uh, you know, in, in just my workspace of, you know, tactics, there's principles of tactics, but you know, there's a lot of depends and there's, there's, you know, there's, you can't always rely on always, we're going to always do this, or we're never going to do that. I mean, the dynamics change from moment to moment from, and it, it, so it, it does get complicated to kind of unwind that Rubik's cube. And it's just, that's why I just love that tool. I mean, you could just sit there real quick and just go, okay, if something, if, you know, if this was in the paper tomorrow, how am I going to approach this? So I love it. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so Pat, let's talk about passion for a second. I mean, uh, it's, it's a central ingredient to getting people, uh, you know, fired up about their work. And so how do you, you know, what, what do you do beyond giving people some autonomy and, and, and some options in, in, in their workspace to take some ownership. But I mean, how do you, you know, what else are you doing to try to drive that passion? Well, I constantly tell them how important they are and their contribution to keeping our country safe. And you guys do the same thing, keeping your community safe. And so when you appeal to them and say, 
think of all the important thing, things that you're doing. You're, you're keeping people safe. Um, it's, it's something that you can be proud of at the end of the day and said, I made a, I made a positive contribution today. And so when you are motivated by doing the right thing and, and keeping your fellow officers and your community safe, that's something that you can be passionate about. <clears throat> and I'm constantly second guessing myself and going over and over again, how could we do things better? And so it was instilling an intellectually curious culture by which, you know, we weren't satisfied with just getting by. How can we learn from it and become better next time? And, and, and doing what if situations. I used to sit on my bridge wing chair and constantly do what if situations. Like what if we detected a missile coming at us right now? What are my immediate reactions? So it's having a passion to be the best and also to keeping yourself and your fellow um, officers safe and and being mentally sharp and doing what-if scenarios so that if something comes up, you've already trained yourself in what your initial reactions are. <clears throat> and I did that every day on the ship. I would sit on my bridge wing chair and stare out at the ocean, and the crew thought I was just daydreaming, but I was <laughs> mentally rehearsing um, what-if situations so that if they happened, I would have in a playbook to go into immediately to diffuse the situation. Nice, I love it. Uh, what about uh, another thing you mentioned in the book is just uh, this, you describe good work as good play. And and I really see that there's that symbiotic relationship between being passionate, you know, and just, and just having fun. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody wants to have a good time. And uh, so, I, how do you see play in the workplace? Well, I want people to be optimistic and upbeat, and I want them to enjoy coming to work instead of dreading it. And so one of the things I could do was do activities on the ship like Thursday afternoon, sunset jazz and cigars, where everybody comes together, smoke a cigar, chew the fat, you know, uh, develop some camaraderie. Every other Friday night, we'd have a happy hour on the ship without the alcohol. But it, it's a way to engender some friendship and camaraderie so that um, people enjoy working with others and enjoy coming to work. And, and we can do that in government service. Uh, we just need to think outside the box and how do we, how do we engender that camaraderie. And so, um, you know, it's important. People don't want to dread coming to work. And so what can we do to make it a little more interesting, a little bit more fun so that they have a smile on their face when they're out there uh, policing the community instead of being, you know, downbeat and pessimistic that can, that can also be misconstrued by the people you're trying to keep safe um, and, and, and potentially cause a, an outcome not to turn out the way you want it to. And so if, you know, we're out there, you know, upbeat, positive, you know, looking people in the eye. They know that we're on their side and, and that we'll diffuse the situation instead of, uh, in, instead of causing it to become worse. No, you're so right. And, um, you know, every day before a, a, a patrol goes out, uh, you know, hits the streets, you know, we have a roll call and, 
And the last thing I want from from my sergeants is to send those uh, officers out from roll call w- with just, you know, in 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 a you know, they, I, I need them to be in an upbeat mood when they leave. And, um, you know, that is the one opportunity we have every day uh, for them to, to, to laugh and to, to do something with each other that, uh, that just, that, you know, that's just fun. And, you know, not saying we have a, 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 a stand-up comedian come in and, 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 and rouse the group a little bit, but they're already going to go out and deal with people when they're at their saddest, maddest and baddest, um, it, right. People are calling the police cause they're in crisis. And so, um, I want to spend that time and, and, and train, but training is important too. So, you know, sometimes it's this, the art of how you're going to set up your roll call. You know I mean? You might have to show a tactical video that, that gets people thinking about officer safety stuff or diffusing situations, but you want to end on a highlight, something, something fun and energetic because the last thing I want to see people frowning on their way out to their car to do the rest of their nine and a half hours uh, on the streets. And so, yeah, I think that's just huge that that, that morale boost is, is so important. And uh, so thanks. Thanks for sharing. Well, I, spoke at, I, I spoke at an event one time and before I get up, the president of the bank made everybody stand up and tell everybody else what they were most proud of in their lives. And you should have seen reactions when, it was the first time they'd ever done it. And when people told something that they were proud of in their life that nobody else knew about, you know, people had a different, a newfound respect for them or admiration or whatever. And they acknowledged what that person was most proud of. And it was a way to connect with them. And in my own crude way, that's what I tried to do with the interviews is to find out what my sailors were most proud of in their lives. And if your people think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. You know, so at the morning roll call, you could do something like, you know, you know, what are you most proud of? And and do one a day or whatever. And um, and then, you know, if, the, if somebody's proud of their son, you know, playing baseball, how was the game the other night or whatever. So it's a way to show that you care about them and, and, and I listened, I remembered what everybody was most proud of so that I could then use that um, in the future to let them know that I remember it and that I care about them and, and they feel important. And so those are things you can do at roll call. It doesn't take but, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds and, and find out what people are most proud of in their lives and, and they'll think you care about them. Oh, I love it. That's good stuff. So I watched you in a, in a YouTube video, uh, and you, you told a story about this uh, successful person who had grown a business to, a, to the point where it was stuck, and he was working every day around the clock. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I just really think it's a it's it's a good story, or at least a a, 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 a good final lasting impression of. Uh, your advice is really simple to him in, in regards to how, how he could grow his business. And I'd, you know, I'd just kind of like you to share, share that uh, if, if you could. So I'm, I'm having trouble recalling that incident. Tell me the, the story again or the person's name. Yeah. You know, I, the, the, the guy's name uh, escapes me, but he was, he was, he was a small businessman who basically just, uh, uh, I mean, your, your basic, your message was pretty simple, which was if you want to grow your business, you got to engage your people. Um, 
you know, because he was just pushing, pushing, and pushing to tr- to try to, you know, he was having a funnel issue, and his funnel is, you know, when when all decisions come to the boss, uh, you know, you can only make so many decisions uh, a day, you can only take on so many projects, and I think it's just the, I think your message was just the power in numbers, you know, there's, uh, you know, so, widening widening that you know, funnel. You know, captains walk down the pier every morning to their ships. And you can tell by the way they walk what kind of mood they're in. And I saw one captain one day, and he looked so downbeat and depressed. And, and I said, Ty, what's, you know, what's wrong? And he said, I just hate this job, and I'm just praying I don't get anybody killed or injured until I get replaced. Mm-hmm. And it's like if I, I wanted to kill myself after just talking to him for 10 seconds on the pier. What do you think his people think? you know, with somebody who's so downbeat and pessimistic. And he felt he had to do everything on his own. He had to make every decision. So, of course, you know, he has no – he's worn down. He doesn't have the mental stamina or the physical stamina uh, to do the job because he's getting involved in, in, you know, every little decision. And I'm I'm proud of the fact that I didn't get involved in every decision. And – and we didn't sink and nobody got killed or injured. And so you have to know when to let things go and let people take care of it on their own, as opposed to getting involved in every little decision, because you won't have the mental stamina to have the judgment to do the, the to make the big decisions. If it comes at the end of a shift and you're dog tired, you know, and you might make a wrong decision because you're because of fatigue. And so I wouldn't let myself get worn down over things that, you know, that aren't mission critical, but still have to get done, but they don't need me to get involved in every little decision. And so that enabled me to have the the mental stamina to do my what if scenarios every day. And so if you're so bogged down in every detail that you, you run yourself down and everybody knows it, you're, you're not of use to them when you're really needed in a crisis and need to make, you know, sharp decisions on the spur of the moment. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, my pretty much my, uh, one of my last questions for you is, you know, if, if you're an aspiring, uh, leader yourself, you want to develop your, your leadership potential in any which way. I mean, what, what, what advice do you have to start first? I mean, what, what do you think is the most important, uh, tool that somebody can, can, can start sharpening that saw and, and, and get some experience and exposure to. So have that self-awareness as to how you're being perceived by the people you're trying to influence. And as you get more and more senior, you tend to transmit more than receive. And I think as you get more senior, you should receive more than transmit. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I resist the temptation to tell people what the solution was instead I would listen and I would try to receive the message they were trying to send before I, before I would give my opinion. And so, um, it was a nasty habit I got into. I, before I took command of the ship, I would tell people what the answer was before they even finished the sentence. And I realized when I saw my predecessor getting cheered off the ship, how irritating that must be to people. So now I try to sit back, listen, listen more, and then transmit as opposed to listen only a little bit and transmit right off the bat. 
Right. It's good stuff. Um, where can one go to stay informed on what you're working on? Uh, APGleadership.com. It stands for Aegis Performance Group. Our, my ship, USS Benfold, was an, an Aegis-class destroyer. And so uh, my website is APGleadership.com, and uh, everybody's welcome to go check it out. Fantastic. Well, we, uh, we appreciate uh, having you join us today, Michael, and I hope you have a, a great day, and uh, thanks again. You got it, Brian. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to our show today, and as always, we encourage your feedback. You can provide that feedback at my email at bellis at commandcollege.org. As always, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Figure out who you are and be purposeful. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into the BadgeCast One podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a colleague. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Statement and views on this podcast are those of the guests, and the opinions of the guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representation or warranties about guests or qualifications or credibility. This podcast is the product of the National Command and Staff College. Copyright 2010 to 2035. Any use of this without the express consent of the National Command and Staff College is strictly prohibited by law. For more information, email us at infocommandcollege.org. At